the DeSoto County campus, the fun church in Horn Lake, Mississippi. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church. you better act right y'all better act right out there we're in our series acts right as we go through the book of acts we learn how to do it right tonight's lesson is part number seven it's entitled vow or never vow with a v vow or never everybody knows who i am right i don't have to go through the introductions I look vaguely for me. I'm Georgia. We got Mississippi back there. <coughs> uh, what does holy mean? Does anybody know? What's your understanding of the word holy? Sacred? Set apart? I looked it up in the Merriam Webster. Merriam Webster is, you know, a dictionary, but I believe he was a Christian. It says, exalted or worthy of complete devotion. Like we just said, complete devotion. We hold nothing back from him. We give him everything because he can be trusted. Why? Because he's exalted, worthy of complete devotion as one perfect, perfect in goodness and righteousness. That's what he says holiness is. And when we say God is holy... Now we know what we're talking about. He can be completely trusted because he's perfect and righteous in every way. So if we say some things tonight that you say, wow, I didn't know that about God, and it may throw you for a loop, are you still going to love him? Are you still going to trust him? Of course, because we don't know all the facts. We just work with what we're given, right? But we do know this. He has touched our hearts. He has changed our lives. We are living testimonies to the power of God. You know, nobody can take that from you. They may not ever open the word of God. They may not believe any of those stories from the Old Testament. But they can't take away your testimony, what he has done in your life. And you have been in that pool swimming so long, can't nobody tell you there ain't water in that pool, right? You know he's real. You know he's right. You know he's good. Is God holy? Yes. Is he worthy? Yes. Can we trust that everything that he does is good and right? Yes. Ultimately for our good, right? Well, Matthew 21, Jesus <coughs> told a parable. He said a man with two sons, he told the oldest boy, he said, I want you to go work in the vineyard. And the oldest boy said, no, Dad, I... I don't want to go work in the vineyard. But he changed his mind, and later he went and worked in the vineyard. But meanwhile, the dad had asked the younger, the other boy. 
He said, go work in the... Well, he didn't ask. He said, go work in the vineyard. And you know what he said? Yeah, I'll go. But he didn't go. Jesus asked the question, which one of these two did right? Which one of these two obeyed his father? Well, we'll talk about that before we leave tonight. In the meantime, turn to Acts chapter 5. You thought I was just kidding about moving through the book of Acts, didn't you? Last week was chapter 4. The week before that was chapter 3. I'm not saying we're going through all the book of Acts. What is it? How many books is in there? 27, 28, 28 chapters. No, we won't be on this series that long. <clears throat> I don't think, but we're going day to day. We're kind of winging it. Acts 5, 1. Now, if you look at, we're not going there, but at the end of Acts chapter 4, it started talking about how all the disciples, you know, you remember Peter had been preaching, and now they're up to 5,000 men and women and children. There's all these people, and they're so excited about the gospel that they're just sharing their stuff with everybody. They're bringing their money to the apostles, and the apostles are giving it to those in need. And it says that some of them would sell the field that they own and take all the money and give it to the, to the apostles so they could distribute it. And I'm, I'm talking they were really, they, they were putting down their desires for this world and just loving on one another. That's why when you hear a lot of people talking about, I wish we had the kind of church that they had back in Acts, they're often talking about scriptures like this that say the love and devotion that they had for one another. But in verse 1 it says, there was a certain man named Ananias who with his wife Sapphira sold some property. So they wanted to get in on this selling the property and giving it stuff. He He brought part of the money to the apostles claiming it was the full amount. So he wanted to look good. It doesn't say how much he brought, but he wanted to say, I sold my 40 acres back there, and I'm giving it all to the church. He wanted to look big in front of the people. And it says it was with his wife's consent that he kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit, and you kept some of the money for yourself. He said, the property was yours to sell or not to sell, as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away, to do what you wanted. But you chose to do this. How could you do a thing like this? He said, you weren't lying to us, but to God. Say, lying to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, He fell to the floor and died. I don't know if it was right right there in front of the pulpit or where it was. In in Peter's office, if he had an office. But probably at the church. He killed over and died right there. Pretty amazing. It says everybody who heard about it was terrified. And wouldn't you be if somebody died here in our church service? Then some young men got up and they wrapped him in a sheet and they took him out. And they buried him. Six feet, I guess, you know. So they get out there burying this guy, sweating. And about three hours later, his wife comes in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, was it this price that you and your husband received for the land? Yes, she replied, that's the price. And Peter said, 
How could you two even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door. And they will carry you out too. Those guys probably just got back. Three hours worth of digging. They're like, are you kidding me? (laughs) Don't do it, Peter. Don't do it. Don't say it, Peter. (laughs) Instantly, she fell to the floor and died. When the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Back then, I guess they didn't do all that embalming and funeral stuff. They just chunked them in the grave. Verse 11 says, great fear. Look at your neighbor and say, great fear. Great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. Now, is that a good thing? That great fear gripped the church? Oh, is it a bad thing? I mean, do we want a reputation of people falling over dead? I'm not going to that church. But ironically, let's see what it says. I didn't write this down. Acts 5, 14, said, Yet more and more people believed and were brought to the Lord, crowds of men and women. So this didn't stop them. This let them see the gravity of their situation. This fear of the Lord brought people to him, not pushed them away. You know what really disturbs me most about this story? That it's in the New Testament. Think about that. This isn't some Old Testament story that you can say, yeah, but Jesus has come now and we all live under grace and that stuff doesn't happen anymore. This is after Jesus. This is a New Testament church. Two people fell over dead from judgment. Does that bother you at all? Does that rock your religious thinking? Does that, does that, what's it called? Or, it does mine a little bit. Because, you know, we like to think that God only does the things that we approve of. God doesn't kill anybody. That's always the devil. That's the way I heard it preached. Right? All the bad stuff that happens, that's the devil. God doesn't work with the devil. God God does good and the devil does bad. But does God get the devil to do his judgment for him? Then they would be working together. Yeah, you're right. God doesn't work with the devil. He doesn't need the devil for anything. I've also heard it preached that the fear of God is just a, a reverential fear. Oh, it's just an awe. It's just an awe, you know. We're so inspired by God. And we are. (laughs) Absolutely. But is that all the fear of the Lord is? What have you been taught? Let me ask a few questions. Was it the devil that caused a great flood on the earth and wiped out all of humanity except for eight people? Was it the devil that did? Is that what the Bible, your Bible says? Because God wouldn't kill anybody. Was it the devil that put leprosy on Miriam for being racist and complaining about Moses' wife, being prideful, thinking that she's as big as Moses? 
When it says in that very same scripture that Moses was the most humble man on the earth. What a contrast for her to jump up and say, well, we got all the same stuff you got, Moses. We hear from God just like you do. And we don't believe it's right for you to be dating somebody of a different color than you. Read it for yourself. God struck her with leprosy and wasn't apologetic about it. In fact, Moses had to plead for her life. He said, please, God, don't do this to my sister. Moses says, well, if, if her own daddy spit in her face, wouldn't she have to be outside the camp for seven days before you let her in? Make her go outside the camp seven days before she comes back in. Then she'll be all right. So God healed her. But he let her experience a little of his judgment, a little of his wrath. Did the devil, was, was it the devil that rained down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah? Was that him? So was it the devil that killed Ananias and Sapphira? No. Or was it God? Let's discuss the 1028s. Does anybody know what the 1028s are? Probably not because I made it up. Let's go to Matthew 1028. <laughs> but next time I say let's discuss the 1028s, you can remind me what I, in the world I was talking about. I'm going to read it in the King James. It says, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Who is that? Just people. Somebody may shoot you or whatever, and they can kill your body, but they, they can't touch your soul. But it says, But rather fear him, meaning God, which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. In other words, he can kill you and send you to hell. Hello? Wait a minute. I thought God didn't send anybody to hell. So, fear him. Does that sound like the reverential kind of awe? I'm in awe of him because he can kill me. No, that sounds like the trembling kind of fear to me, doesn't it to you? I might be kicking over somebody's sacred cow. I'm sorry. All right, the 1028, that was Matthew 1028. Let's go to Hebrews 1028. I'm not doing a lot of talking. I'm just letting the scriptures do the talking. And I'm not trying to say that I'm happy about any of this. <laughs> Just presenting the facts. Hebrews 10, 28. It says, For anyone who refused to obey the law of Moses was put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. In the Old Testament, if people wouldn't obey the law, then they could be stoned to death. If two or three people saw them do it and they went and told on them and they had three witnesses, they could stone them to death. Yeah, but that's the God of the Old Testament. That's the way we like to say it. But just think how much worse the punishment will be for those who have trampled on the Son of God. So this is bringing it to the New Testament because there was no Son of God there in the Old Testament, right? Think how much worse the punishment will be for those who have been, who trample on the Son of God and have treated the blood of the covenant which made us holy as if it were common and unholy and have insulted and disdained the Holy Spirit 
who brings God's mercy to us. For we know the one who said, I will take revenge. I will pay him back. He also said, the Lord will judge his own people. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a living God, of the living God. In the King James, it says it's a fearful thing. Not just reverential fear. We're talking about somebody who could give you a worse punishment than being stoned to death for not keeping the law. It says look out for a worse punishment if you trample under your feet the Son of God and count His blood as an unholy thing. Why are you scaring us, Pastor? Why do you bring these things up? Would you rather find out like Ananias and Sapphira found out? I bet they would have wished their pastor would have preached this message the week before. Don't you think? See, God is holy. He's sovereign. And he hates lying. You know what sovereign means, right? None of us are sovereign. (laughs) Sovereign means you can do what you want. You're in complete control. You have authority to do what you like to do. And you can only say that really in the fullness of it if you're God. Would you rather find out about God's holiness the way uh, Aaron's sons did? In the book of Leviticus, in the 10th chapter, he, it tells, you know, Aaron was Moses' brother, and he was appointed the high priest. And so his sons became priests along with him. They wore the flowing robes and the, the breastplates and all that stuff, and they ministered before the Lord. One of his sons was named Nadab, and the other was named Abihu. Now, they had been strictly charged how to handle holy things. It wasn't like an honest mistake. They had been taught the way to minister before the Lord. But these two get together one day. I I don't know what they're thinking, but they put some incense in their little burner things, and they start to make a strange fire, it says, before the Lord. They're trying to burn incense before God in a way he didn't tell them to do. And this is, you know, maybe standing in a holy of holies. I don't know where they were at. I I didn't see that part. They were probably, what they were doing is they probably seen the pagans do that for their God. I imagine. You know, there's a lot of that incense burning and worship going on. And they were probably trying to bring over some pagan things and, and please God with it. They might have been trying to please God or they just might not have been taking the things of God seriously. But anyway, they were revisited with a different strange fire. They were devoured by the fire of God and both of them killed on the spot. They learned quickly about the holy things. Then many years later, David has captured the city of Jerusalem. And he says, man, you know what's missing? The Ark of the Covenant. It's been over dude's house. Let's go get it. So they go, he brings 30,000 men. I mean, he is ready to bring the Ark of God, you know, where God's presence 
is kept. He's ready to bring it back to Jerusalem where it belongs. So he brings 30,000 men, and they're all excited, and they get the thing, and they build a, a cart to put it on, and I think they had some oxen or whatever pulling the cart, and they got people, and they're ready to party, and they start off dancing, and they're going down, down the road, and they hadn't got hardly anywhere when a dude named Yuza, <coughs> Yuza was just walking along the cart to make sure it's steady on there, and they hit like a bump in the road, and it started coming towards Yuza. Yuza puts his hands up, and when he touches the ark of God, the holy place, he is consumed and dies on the spot. Wow, God, that's, that's a little harsh. That's what David said. He was upset. He's like, bring that thing back. I'm not messing with it. He wanted, to, he wanted to leave God. Sort of like in the New Testament when Jesus said some hard things and most of them got up and left. And Jesus turned around and said, will y'all leave too? <coughs> David said in 2 Samuel 6, 9, it says, David was afraid of the Lord that day. There it is again. Maybe David didn't have enough fear of the Lord. Because if he'd have had enough fear, he knew that you were not supposed to put the ark of God on a common wagon and pull it with some oxen. They had been instructed how to handle the things of God. The Levitical priests were supposed to carry the Ark of the Covenant, with an acacia pole stuck through. Some of this is just coming out of my head. But they were supposed to carry through, and they were supposed to carry it on their shoulders. God doesn't ride on a mule, in a, on, a, on a wagon. They had been instructed in great detail. So later on, David realizes his mistake, and he goes back, and they bring the Ark of the Covenant in. I don't know how all holy things work, and I'm probably one of the most unholy people you'd ever meet <laughs> as far as, you know, I feel like it. I don't feel holy. I just feel like I try to serve the Lord best I know how, and I just hope he, by the blood, I know by the blood of Jesus I've been made holy. But it's like just little things that I would have never grasped before I met the Lord. Now I understand a little bit about it stuff, the respect and the awe and the fear. It's like when I look at our altar. Often during the day I'll come up here and I'll remove all scraps of paper. You know, we put song lists and stuff up here and I'll take all the song lists off and, and I'll clean it up and if anybody's station is a little off, it's not because I'm making it look good. It's because of my fear for, of God and my reverence for his holy altar. Even if it's just a little altar here in South Haven, Mississippi, that you think nobody knows about. For the simple fact that God has visited this place. He was here Tuesday night, last night at prayer. He was here just a while ago. He's here right now. Sometimes I cringe when I see people bring a sack of biscuits or something up on the altar, you know, or I see some, somebody eating or something up there. And you know what? I hadn't said anything about it, but maybe I should. 
Maybe we need to change some things about how we respect the things of God. And that's why I think the Lord's given us this message today. It's about integrity. <clears throat> so let's go back to our text. What did, what did we learn from Ananias and Sapphira? Well, the two obvious things are don't make vows that you can't keep. Or in their case, vows that they didn't intend to keep. Don't lie to the Holy Spirit. Don't lie to God. He's not just one of your friends or your buddies or something. I mean, he'll, he'll bear with you as you grow as a baby Christian, but at some point, you, if you've been serving him a long time and you, have, you know about the fear of the Lord, don't lie to God. I think he takes that stuff serious. Let's talk about some people who made vows in the Bible. What about Samson? You remember he was under a Nazarite vow. You were talking about him at the jail the other night. The Nazarite vow was you never cut your hair. Well, it was usually for a length of time that you made the vow, but I think since it, it was given to him before he was born, he was a miracle child, and he took the Nazarite vow. His, his parents gave, uh, took the Nazarite vow, and he could never drink any alcohol, anything from the grapevine, and he couldn't touch any dead things because it would make him unclean. <sighs> Samson. Man, he had such strength and such power and such promise. He went around defeating the enemies like it wasn't nothing. Killed a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. I mean, he could whoop the enemy. They were scared of him. They, they, one man was holding them at bay and, and delivering the people of Israel. That's how much God had invested gifts into Samson and strength. I mean, he was like a superhero of his day. Like you said, he could carry the gates of a whole city on his shoulders. He could do anything. He was like Superman. But it was because of his vow. And what happened in the moment? He let somebody cut his hair. He lost the benefits of his vow. But it had been working up to that already, hadn't it? He'd been sleeping with prostitutes. The jawbone of a donkey is a dead thing. Good point. He had ate, eaten honey out of the dead lion's carcass, touching dead things. He had just been breaking his vows over and over again until finally he did it to himself. He let somebody know the secret of his strength, and they cut his hair off, and then they poked his eyes out immediately. And what happened? A man who could have delivered Israel for 100 years dies early. Be healed in the name of Jesus. Lord, take her pain. Is there anything that you can you need? Mm -mm. Lord, I thank you. Another man who had a Nazarite vow was John the Baptist. He didn't break his vows. And Jesus said of John the Baptist, what? On this side of heaven, this is the greatest man you'll ever see.
there was a woman named Hannah who couldn't have children. She wept before God, before the priest Eli. Eli talked to her. and She said, if God would give me a child, I'll dedicate that baby to the Lord, to the work of the Lord. And Eli said, let it be done unto you. She went home and she conceived a child she had never been able to bear. And she bore a child named Samuel. And uh, as soon as that child was weaned from her breast, she brought it back to Eli and gave him in service to the Lord. He went on to become the best priest that I see in the Bible. He went on to be the steady hand when Saul was at the kingship. The right-hand man of King David at a crucial time in the history of Israel. An awesome man of God. And Hannah, she got to see her son do all these great things because she kept her vow. And besides that, she had other children as well. See, making vows, we want to just say, well, you know, if I, breaking vows is going to get me in so much trouble, I'm not going to make any vows. But if you keep your vows to the Lord, it's always going to be to your benefit. But you just got to be serious about them. I wasn't serious about my vows when I was a kid. <laughs> and I used to bargain with God all the time. Did anybody ever used to bargain with God? God, I won't sin. I won't, I won't, I won't say no more cuss words for the next 20 minutes. <laughs> if you'll let me date that girl right there. You know, it was, it was always something ridiculous. But see, I thought you were supposed to bargain with God. I didn't know any better because I went to a church where you're supposed to tell your sins to a man and he tells you how many prayers to say so that you can be forgiven. That sounds like bargaining to me. I thought that's the way God worked. I didn't know God at all. I, I remember before my junior high baseball games, I would get my rosary out and I'd say my Hail Marys and our fathers thinking that if I did the whole rosary before I pitched, I would you know, have a no-hitter or God would help me have a good game. That's superstition. That's not God. You're right. I remember being on the mound, and I would carve in the back of the mound a cross, thinking that God's going to help me now because, you know, I'm doing something for God. He's got to do something for me. That's not really the way it's supposed to work. And then probably the most famous vow in the Bible is a guy named Jephthah. Does anybody remember Jephthah? Jephthah, he was from Gilead, and his dad was a Gileonite or whatever they were. <laughs> and, his, and his mom, well, his, his mom was a prostitute that his dad had slept with, and he was kind of like an accident. But he had a bunch of brothers that were, you know, their mom was married to Jephthah's dad. And so they couldn't stand Jephthah. They said, you, you're not getting inheritance with us, you're a... You're a son of a prostitute. And they treated him like a dog, kicked him out. But what they didn't realize, Jephthah grew up and became a great warrior. And pretty soon the Amorites come a-knocking. And they're wanting to wipe Gilead out, and they had the manpower to do it. And so somebody looked around and said, let's go talk to Jephthah. Maybe he can help. He's a great warrior. So they went to Jephthah, and Jephthah said, no, you guys didn't want me before. Why you want me now? But anyway, they talked him into it and said, you can be our king, basically, if you'll if you'll fight for us. He said, you sure about that? And they said, yeah. He said, all right, I'll do it. 
So he prayed to God and he made a vow. He could have probably vowed anything. He probably could have went without a vow, okay? But he told God, I think in a rash, hasty vow, he said, God, if you'll give me this victory, when I go home, the first thing that comes out to meet me, I'll give to you as a burnt offering. God gives him the victory. He saves Gilead. He becomes the king, and he goes home so happy, you know, that everything's going well. And as he turns the corner, his daughter sees him and comes running out the house with a tambourine celebrating daddy's home. And here's what he says. In Judges 11.35, when he saw her, he tore his clothes in anguish. Oh, my daughter, he cried out, for you have completely destroyed me. You have brought disaster on me, like it was her. For I have made a vow to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. Doesn't that sound like a man of integrity? We're talking about his own, as it was his only daughter. And he said, I cannot take it back. He didn't say, uh, uh, God, what was that we had talked about earlier? I forget now that I'm in my right mind. You know, I wasn't really thinking. No, I made a vow and I cannot take it back. If you think that is integrity, wait till you hear what his daughter says. And she said, Father, if you have made a vow to the Lord, you must do to me what you have vowed. For the Lord has given you a great victory over your enemy, the Ammonites. She is willing, whatever he vowed, to give up. And she did. Now, Historians argue because the Bible doesn't tell us. Some say that God never asked for a human sacrifice, and he hasn't. He's never asked for a human sacrifice. That was a foolish vow. Did he? Abraham. Didn't he have to give his son? Well, he asked Abraham, but he wasn't intending on killing Isaac. But he asked. Okay. Okay, you're right. Technically, you're right. He asked one time, but he never desired a human sacrifice. That might be a better way to say it. And some say, well, that just meant that she was a virgin and, and she would be devoted to the work of the Lord and she would stay a virgin and that would be fulfillment of the vow. Maybe. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But maybe he burned his daughter to death as a burnt sacrifice to fulfill a vow. Which is probably... He knew, didn't he? Well, it doesn't say for sure, but it certainly does imply, it doesn't imply that she was going to be a virgin. That sounds like some story somebody made up that believes that God never does anything wrong. God didn't do anything wrong. Jephthah is the one who made the foolish vow. But, you know, in Hebrews chapter 11, where it's the hall of fame for the, the faith giants in the Bible, guess whose name is mentioned? Jephthah. Did you know that? Was it because he was such a great warrior or was it because he kept his vow even when it meant his own daughter? Something to think about. Fierce integrity. Do you have fierce integrity? After I got saved in my 30s, 
I read the Bible like crazy. You know, I still do. I love the Word of God. It is what's changed my life. I couldn't, have cha- I couldn't do anything that I do today if I wouldn't have fell in love with the Word of God. But, but I had this secret. I love Louis L'Amour books. Anybody know Louis L'Amour? He's a Western writer. And so I would read Louis L'Amour books, and sometimes I would feel guilty because I could be spending this time reading the Word of God. And so I kind of felt it was like a guilty pleasure, you know. But I, I continued on. I, I think I've read every Louis L'Amour book ever written. Chad has too. There's probably over 100 of them, right? And I haven't, it's been a long time since I have seen one that I haven't already read. Most of them I read three or four times. And it's so simple. It's the same people in every story. Not really. They have different names in different situations, but the good guy is always the good guy. Always. And he always has this fierce integrity. I don't care if he just got out of prison for six years. He has built this fierce integrity by the time he gets into a Louis L'Amour book. And I begin to see the way they, they did things in the Old West. You know, it, the, the men of the Old West were amazing. Do you know they actually hung people for stealing a horse? Because Why? Because if somebody stole your horse, you could die out there. Do you know in the Old West, if somebody called you a liar, them was fighting words? That you were fixing to pull iron over that. You call me a liar because you have insulted my integrity. If, you, if somebody called you a liar and you didn't tug on your iron, then you were known from then on as a liar and a coward. And if you called somebody a coward, it was over for them. Nobody would hire them. Read some Louis L'Amour books. <laughs> you know why I say that? Because God showed me later that I had no integrity growing up. I had no father in the house. He used Louis L'Amour books to begin to teach me how to be a man of my word and have fierce integrity and have th- understand that there's things worth dying for because in those books, every time the hero, he would give his life for the woman or give his life for the cause. Every time. That's why people like the books. Because you knew what to expect. The good guy was going to win. God can use whatever God needs to use. In Psalms 138, it says, For thou, and you might say, O Lord, hast magnified thy word above thy name, above all thy name. In other words, my word is above my name. In other words, that's what's more important to me, that I keep my word. As much as God's name is to be reverenced, above all other names, above every name that is named, his word he magnifies above his name. And God expects us to do the same. Because you know what? If our word is no good, our name is no good. If people can't trust us, 
then our name is bad. You're not going to get a job. You're going to be called a coward, like in the Louis L'Amour books. Numbers 30, verse 2 says, A man who makes a vow to the Lord or makes a pledge under oath must never break it. He must do exactly what he said he would do. Deuteronomy 23, 21. But when you make a vow to the Lord your God, be prompt in fulfilling whatever you have promised him. For the Lord your God demands that you promptly fulfill all your vows or you will be guilty of sin. However, it is not sin to refrain from making a vow. But once you have voluntarily made a vow, be careful to fulfill your promise to the Lord your God. So what would wisdom suggest? That was the question I had at this point. So I looked in the book of wisdom. Proverbs 20, 25 says, Don't trap yourself by making a rash promise to God and only later count the cost. You want to, make, you want to count the cost before you speak before God and make a vow. You know, sometimes in the, in the emotion of worship or something, God, I'm never doing this again. Or, you know, I promise God. We make a vow before God, but we didn't count the cost. We didn't know if we were really ready for that. Don't be rash in making your vows before God. There is a time, there is a time, and I often say this, to make firm decisions before God. But a firm decision before God is not the same as a vow to God. I often say, Early on in my Christianity, I realized I had to make firm decisions. I am never doing that again. And so I went to God, and God said, I said, God, as much as within me and with your help, I'm going to do my best never to do that again. I'll make a decision to put that behind me. But that's not a vow to God. That's telling him I'm going to do my best. But a vow would be, God, I vow I will never do that. That's a little more binding. Ecclesiastes 5.4 says, When you make a promise to God, don't delay in following through, for God takes no pleasure in fools. Keep all the promises you made to him. It is better to say nothing than to make a promise and not keep it. Don't let your mouth make you sin, and don't defend yourself by telling the temple messenger that the promise you made was a mistake. Have you ever done that? God, I didn't mean that last week when I... That would make God angry, and he might wipe out everything you have achieved. Talk is cheap like daydreams and other useless activities. Fear God instead. There's that word again. Fear God. Be careful what you say before God. Like I said, somebody might say at this point, well, I'm never making a vow. But like I said, vows can be a wonderful thing if taken seriously. Let me tell you the two most important vows that you'll ever make before God. First, your vow to make him Lord of your life. The day you got saved. Your salvation vow. Because when you said, come into my life and be my Lord, you were vowing to be his servant and him to be the Lord. Right? You repented of your sins to get saved, didn't you? Said, God, I'm turning my back on my sins. So that meant that you didn't want that. You have chosen God and you have chosen to be Lord. If we vow Jesus is Lord, is he? 
I think everybody in here has asked Jesus to be the Lord of their life. But if you're a person of fierce integrity, is he? Are you still making the decisions and then asking God to bless your mess? God, here's what I'm going to do, and I hope you bless me. Is that the way we should do? If he's Lord, we go to him and say, God, what do you have me do? What would you have me do? And wherever he tells us to go is already blessed. Whatever he tells us to do is already blessed. Most Christians live life the way they want to, and they only talk to God when they want him to bless their mess. That is not lordship. You are still Lord of your own life. You're still sitting on the throne. The second most important vow that I see is the marriage vow. It's clearly the most important vow that you can make with an, another person, but it's also a vow made before God, right? You, you said your vows before God. Till death do us part, not till honeymoon doeth be over. So guess what? We're going to talk about that Sunday. We're in that family survival kit series, and it's time we move to marriages. Over time, if we're not careful, we can begin to let our marriage and salvation vows slip. We can just begin to take those things for granted. That's why sometimes people renew their marriage vows. Maybe sometimes... That's why people come down to the front and renew their vows before the Lord. You know, we're humans. Our brains leak, and over time we forget. And, uh, what? You know, so, so it's okay. Just keep getting back up. Just keep moving forward. That's how winning's done. Psalm 15, verse 1 says, Who may worship in your sanctuary, Lord? Who may enter your presence on your holy hill? Those who lead blameless lives and do what is right. Speaking the truth from sincere hearts. See, that's what God's looking for. He wants somebody that will be honest. See, Jesus is the truth. The devil is a lie. So when you speak lies, you're on the devil's territory. He hates it. But he's looking for somebody with a sincere heart. You see, I don't think Ananias and Sapphira had sincere hearts. I don't think they were just good Christians having a bad day and God struck them down. I think they were wolves in sheep's clothing trying to treat the holy things of God as a toy, personally, but that's just my opinion. Those who refuse to gossip or harm their neighbors or speak evil of their friends, those who despise flagrant sinners and honor the faithful followers of the Lord, and listen to this, and keep their promises, even when it hurts. Can you imagine Jephthah's heart when he come home and his daughter, so excited to see him, comes running out? Being a person of fierce integrity will cost you so much sometimes if you're not careful. It goes on to say, such people, though, will stand forever. Better hurry and close. God's example. Did you know that the new covenant in which we now stand, 
that we put our hopes and dreams on, based our life on, is not a covenant between us and God at all. It's a covenant between the Father and the Son. Because why? Because he had given us covenants to try to live up to, and we had failed time and time again. The old covenant, the, the Noadic covenant, the Abraham covenant, there was just covenants. And man had always failed in every covenant. So he gave us an everlasting covenant. And he made the covenant between two people that can never lie. Himself. In the form of the Father and the Son. That's how we know it's everlasting because it's impossible for God to even lie. He never would. And so our covenant is everlasting. It's not based on us anymore. Thank goodness we, uh, we would be in trouble. <laughs> Can you imagine? I've been in, a, I've been in heaven six thousand years now i'm about the best one he gone to hell he didn't pride done entered in you know <laughs> no leviticus seventeen eleven says for it is by blood that maketh an atonement for the soul god spoke that clear back in the old testament in the first five books and then again in hebrews nine twenty two, it says for without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Why is that important? Because God had said it. And if anybody could go back and say, you know, uh, <laughs> I, don't, I can ignore a vow. I'm God after all. I don't, I don't have to. I'm the creator. I make the rules. You know, that's what I've said before, but how did that work for him when he wanted to save all of mankind, but all of mankind's blood was tainted with the sin of Adam. And the, and the most they could do was die for their own sins. And then his son is crying out in the garden, Father, if there be any other way, that nevertheless not my will, but thine be done. I imagine God felt just like Jephthah. Man, if there was another way, but you know you're the way, Jesus. You're the way. You're the truth. The only way to life. So Jesus in his fierce integrity said the same thing Jethro's daughter did. Do it unto me as, as it's got to be done. God certainly knows we're not perfect. He's, he's monumentally Merciful. I mean, he's just over-the-top merciful. We, we can all agree on that. Even if we see these scriptures that stun us for a moment, we don't know the background on any of this. We don't know how those people had behaved, what was in their heart. And, and you say, well, God, how can you kill somebody? And the, you know, this little life is so big to us, but to God it's like taking his son home from a birthday party when they act up. Come on, you're going me, son. You're going home early. That's all death is to him. Even if it's one of his children, he's just taking you home early. Not something he wants to do. But you see, we don't see things from God's perspective. We don't understand life as he sees it. It's so much bigger than, than we can even grasp. So we, who are we to point fingers at God about anything? We don't know. But I know, I know this. I don't want to take God's holiness lightly. 
the things of God, we need to, we need to have fear. And there's a big difference between being integrity challenged the way we are, all of us, in some regard. I can say I'm fiercely. What, what was I saying? Yeah. I was fiercely, what was that I was saying before? Fiercely. Something like that. But all of us are integrity challenged compared to God. But there's a big difference in that, being someone who has an honest heart and is wanting to do what's right, than to be somebody who is willfully, knowingly going to sit there and lie to the Holy Spirit. It's a big difference. And I think God gives us a lot of leeway. I think he gives us a lot of leeway. So when I ask you the question, which of the sons, the one who said he wouldn't go, but then he went, or the one who went, or the one who didn't go and said he would, which one? The first one. He didn't go at first. He may have said the wrong things. He may have done the wrong thing at first, but he turned from his wrong way of thinking, and he did what was right. And some of us may be saying, fierce integrity was I was trying to get in. Some of us may say, I, I'm not a, I've never been a person of fierce integrity. I don't, I don't know how that works. I just, I'm just kind of going through life. And, and I told Jesus to be my Lord, but I really hadn't led him. Or wherever you're at, you know, maybe at first you said no to God in, in many, many respects. But you can do just like that first son. Say, you know what, I said that, Father, but... Now I'm going to do it. Now I'm going to go, Father. I'm going. Maybe today is the day that you enter into that vineyard. and You begin to truly work for the Lord. And become a person of fierce integrity. Take your vows seriously. listening to the podcast today. We hope you enjoyed it and that it inspires you to live out God's Word. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church.